I invite you to open a Bible to Jeremiah chapter 32. If you're using one of the Bibles that's been provided for you, you'll find this passage on page 660. We want to begin 2011 by examining together as a church what is our vision statement to love God, care for all people, and communicate his word. We also describe that as our upward journey of our relationship with God and our corporate worship together of him and our inward journey of accountability with one another and community as a body of believers and our outward journey of realizing that we have a call and an obligation to those who are not a part of us to serve them, to reach out to them, to love them, to bless them, and to share with them the good news of the gospel. And to do so, we're beginning today a three-part series which will have us in Jeremiah 32 and 33. And our portion will be the first 26 verses of chapter 32. But we are entering into the 32nd chapter of a book, and it's helpful before we jump in and read to get a a bit of the context of what's going on around. But Jeremiah is sometimes described as actually the weeping prophet. If you see a painting that looks like a prophet and there's sort of a, a depressed look in his face and maybe tears flowing, that's likely Jeremiah that's being portrayed. Because Jeremiah lived in one of the darkest periods of Israel's history their exile to Babylon, where the people of Israel were rebelling against God in such a way that finally the Lord said, my, my hedge of protection about you is going to be removed, and the people who want to come in and have your land are going to have it. They will have free reign as a punishment for your rebellion. And it's in the midst of these times that God raises up Jeremiah to be a prophet to speak to the people and to tell them about how they've been wandering away from God, how they've been ignoring his law, and that judgment is coming. And so he did not have a very popular message to share with the people, and very few people took his message to heart. They didn't get convicted and change their behavior. They continued on in the sin that they were doing. And so most of Jeremiah has a very sad tone. It's message after message of judgment. And then right towards the middle end of it, in 30 through 33, there's this section of hope, which is broken up into two parts, 30 and 31 and 32 and 33. And we're looking at chapter 32 and 33, this second section, but all of it in the midst of these circumstances is filled with in the midst of the judgment, there is reason to hope. And our passage actually begins with not a prophecy of Jeremiah, but a story about Jeremiah. And the background of the story is that the Babylonian Empire has been able to successfully besiege Jerusalem, surround it, and prevent access to it or limit it significantly. And not only has Jerusalem been encircled, but the prophet himself, Jeremiah, has been put into prison by the king of Judah. So the city is besieged and the prophet is in prison. And this is where our story begins. If you'll follow along, Jeremiah 32. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year 
of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is an Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions in the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord the hosts of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthen-worn vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel, and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. 
You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and you have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is anything too hard for me. This concludes the portion for our service this morning. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Hopefully, in reading through, you could pick up on some of the narrative that was flowing. Jeremiah is now imprisoned by the king. And this type of imprisonment is not what we would think of today as being bound in a cell, but more of what we would consider house arrest. Because while he's imprisoned, and he definitely has limitations on his time and travel, he's able to have visitors come and see him, and messages are able to go back and forth from him. When most commentators look into this passage and see the freedom that Jeremiah has while he's imprisoned, and the fact that a cousin comes to exchange property... They, they locate this in a period of the struggle that Israel has with Babylon in a period of time when actually Israel started to experience some reinforcements from their neighbors to the south. And there was, if you will, a temporary easing of the conflict that was going on. They were outnumbered. They were outstrategized. The power was all, everything was in favor of Babylon But this was a prolonged conflict. It wasn't a one-battle conflict that settled everything. It was a prolonged, years-long conflict. And there was a period of time where there was a, a lessening, if you will, of what was going on. And in the lessening of the pain, there was reason that the people of Israel had, maybe, to hope that the tide was going to turn in their favor. That in in the midst of that, there is Jeremiah who says to them in verse 5 of what we read, Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. The beginning of his message is this strong affirmation that no matter what reinforcements maybe you feel like you're getting or some temporary break, In what's going on, 
Though you fight, the word of the Lord that I'm responsible to give you is that you will not succeed. They're going to win. Which is why the king put him in prison. He didn't have a very positive message for all of the people who were giving of their time, effort, and energy, hoping to hold on to the little bit that they had left. His message for them was clear, and so the king, not wanting the prophet to affect the morale of all the people any more than the circumstances were already doing so, binds him in prison. And it's in the certainty of this message, which Jeremiah believes. Zedekiah kind of doubts it. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're not praying to God. They're not getting a word from the Lord. It's Jeremiah who is getting this word, who is confident that the battle is over and it is lost, that the message now comes to him to say, I'm going to ask you, in the certainty of this destruction, to purchase a piece of property. You see, there were other people who would have had reason to maybe purchase property in this time. They maybe thought things were changing. We can make an investment while things are low. But Jeremiah is the one person who definitely believes destruction is coming and the battle is over. And it says that the word of the Lord came to him informing him that his uncle was going to come, or a cousin was going to come to him. Your uncle will come to you. And he will say to you that he has a property which Jeremiah, by his relationship to the family, has the right of redemption to purchase. Anathoth is about three miles north of Jerusalem. And as Jeremiah gets this message, the text doesn't tell us anything of what of how he initially would have reacted to it. Was he confused? Did it, did it make sense to him? Was he double-checking things? But we get something later in the text that gives us a sense when finally his cousin comes and passes on the message, and then in verse 8 it says, Jeremiah tells us, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. He got the message, but it wasn't until... His cousin came, actually asked him to purchase the property, that he then said, well, now I know for sure this is the word of the Lord. In other words, he had reason to doubt before this, am I really hearing what God is asking me to say? How is God at one and the same time assuring me of the destruction that's about to come and yet telling me to make an investment in the future of this place? I'm being assured that there is no future, but I'm being asked to make an investment in its future. And so as we read this story, we realize that apart from a dream or some direct message from the Lord, Jeremiah would have said, I'm not making an investment in this place. This isn't a good buy. I've looked at all the charts. This isn't... Anytime soon, going to work out in a way that would make me say, I'm going to invest in this piece of property. And so before the family member comes and offers the transaction, the Lord comes to him to say, 
This isn't some crazy idea that I want you to run away from. This is actually from me, and this is something that I want you to do. And so Jeremiah, doing always what Jeremiah did, he's obedient to the Lord. When our story picks up, Jeremiah has been in ministry for over 30 years, faithfully declaring the word of the Lord, even though it cost him most of his freedoms. He as a prophet never backed down from declaring what was the word of the Lord to the people. That was his responsibility. That's the responsibility of all prophets is to pass on the message. That's it. God is using them to speak through other people and so their responsibility is to pass on the message. Jeremiah was willing to do that even when that message was a message that would get him in trouble. Not in trouble with foreigners, but in trouble with his own people. And after 30 years of obedience to the Lord, Jeremiah had very, very little fruit. If he was asked to submit a resume for a ministry position and asked what his qualifications were, he'd served for a long period of time but there was not in any way some great entrepreneurial success story that would have wowed any board looking to hire a new person. Because his message was continually rejected by the people, but for Jeremiah, he continued to be obedient. And so now when the Lord comes to him and says, purchase a piece of property, he not only does it, but verse 9 begins to describe for us a scene where he gathers together as many witnesses to his purchase as he can. And just as his announcement of the bad news that you will not succeed was a public announcement, so now as God is calling him to take a step in faith and to purchase a piece of property, he gathers around him as many witnesses as he can And wants everyone to know this isn't just an internal commitment or resolution like many of us can make now at the beginning of a year, but we don't want to tell anybody because we're worried we might not stick with the resolution that we're making inside of our head. He's like, no, I want everybody to know what God is calling me to do. And so I'm going to make this commitment public. I'm going to put my name to it. I'm going to sign the document. I want other people to sign it with me. And then he asks Baruch, in the presence of everyone, to take this, to find a vessel that can hold this thing for a long time, and then to take care of it. And verse 15 tells us what Jeremiah believes God is trying to communicate through this exchange of property. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. His investment in a piece of property in Israel, as it's about to be taken over by a foreign power, and therefore property deeds are useless. When King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he's not going to ask, where's your property deed? When he takes it, He takes it. But Jeremiah makes this investment believing that there will be a future in this very land 
when again houses and fields and vineyards shall be bought. When there will be the freedom to exchange goods and services among the people of God, in the land of God. And so he believes in a future beyond Babylon. It's not that Jeremiah doubts anything about Babylon. He believes they're coming. He believes they're going to succeed. But what he also believes is that there's a future beyond Babylon. There's a power greater than Babylon. He's transcending his fears, not ignoring them. This isn't just some wishful thinking. He's transcending his fears. He recognizes the judgment is coming, and yet he's able to surpass it. And when we look at the passage and say, how is Jeremiah able to do this? To make a personal investment while he himself is imprisoned in a land where property is no longer going to be valued, we then turn to verses 16 through 26, where we get a glimpse, not into the prophecy of Jeremiah, but into the prayer of Jeremiah. And prayer is always a revealing thing. Whenever you open up an opportunity for prayer requests and you see what it is that people pray for, it reveals something about themselves. And when you allow somebody the opportunity to pray and they pray, you get to learn something about them that you would never know apart from observing them in prayer. And what we get is Jeremiah in prayer to God and we get to see what are the things that Jeremiah believes about God that enables him to do this. And this is what he says in verse, beginning in verse 17. Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man. Verse 20, you have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. To this day in Israel, among all mankind, it have made a name for yourself. And then again, you've shown signs and wonders with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. And so he describes the God that he serves. For Jeremiah, God is the maker of heaven and earth, the one in whom there is great power, the one for whom nothing is too hard, the one who has all the counsel or power that he needs to carry out and execute his will and the one who knows all of the ways of man and how they are operating. And it is because of this view of God that Jeremiah has that he is able to obey God whenever God asks him to do something. It's Jeremiah's view of God that enables him to obey God when God asks him to do something. But he believes that God is great and mighty, that God is more powerful than any human power or political party or military strength. 
And because he believes that, he can make an investment that God is asking him to make, even when it seems, maybe to the outside world, as a ridiculous thing to do. And one of the things that Jeremiah realized that we often, I feel, struggle to realize in this day and age is the correlation in our Christian life of risk and obedience. The correlation in our Christian life between risk and obedience. If you're like me, when you were growing up, you were more likely to associate risk with disobedience. Somebody tells you to do something. If you do it, you're playing it safe. You're not going to get in trouble for doing what your parents ask you to do, right? You're not going to get in trouble for doing what your teacher tells you to do. You take the risk when you say, I'm not doing that. I'm not interested in that. You can't make me. You just took a risk. (laughs) You have no idea what kind of mood your parents or your teacher or whatever is in. And you now, in asserting yourself, have taken a risk and you don't know where it's going to go. But most of, when that happens, it just gets ingrained in us that the safe thing to do is to be obedient. To do what you're told, to do when you're told, and to do it how you're told. But when it comes to God, our obedience to him involves our willingness to take risk. And it's one of the biggest themes in all of scripture, yet somehow we miss it. When it comes to God, our obedience to him involves our willingness to take risk. And so Jesus, when he's walking around and he's calling disciples, says to them, hey, I can make you fishers of men. Leave your nets and come after me. What kind of risk was involved in that? Well, that was a a total career change for them. Well, if we're going to quit our jobs to follow you, how, how much do you have in the bank? Huh? If I'm leaving my home to follow you and I'm going to stay where you stay, who do you have an in with? Like, where are we staying tomorrow? Well, actually, I don't have a place to stay. You, don't, you want us to follow you, but you can't guarantee for us what, what that's going to look like? And if anything, it's going to be a less comfortable situation than what we are right now experiencing? Would God really call an affluent landowner with tons of resources living in an urban area to go wander off into the wilderness without any of the security or the convenience that an urban life would have possessed for him? That's what he did with Abram. Would God call two ladies who've been ordered by the king of Egypt to take the life of others, to risk being disobedient to them so that a baby that he was raising up to be a redeemer of his people could live? That's how the story of Exodus begins. You know how much risk there was for two servant girls to disobey a pharaoh? And that's what he called them to do. Would God call one of his 
followers to stay in a relationship with a girl that is now pregnant and nobody's really sure how she became pregnant but they weren't married yet and this doesn't look good for him to stay committed to this? Well, he would. That's what he did with Joseph and Mary. Joseph was applying just a very, and even in his own day and age, compassionate way of dealing with it, but a very natural way of dealing with it by saying, look, I'll give you a bill of divorcement. Obviously, something's happened between us and you're interested in somebody other than me and God has to appear to him and say, no, 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 that's not what's happened. And I'm asking you to stick by her while I've called her to something special in my service. But again and again, God calls his people into situations that for them will require tremendous risk. And therefore, so much of what we get, even in the form of our scriptures, is written in those periods where the people of God are suffering from the consequences, not even of their disobedience, but of their obedience. And so our scriptures of David writing in the wilderness. He is off in the wilderness because he is being attacked by a king that does not want to be replaced by him. And so he has to flee. Jeremiah is writing to us from the constraints of house arrest because he's obedient to God. Paul wrote many of his letters to the churches while in prison for proclaiming the word of the Lord. The last book that gives us our ultimate hope of what the future of a new heavens and a new earth will be is written in isolation on an island as a consequence of faithfulness for preaching the word of the Lord. But for all of these people, obedience to God required risk. To do something and to invest in something that did not make sense to even themselves or anybody around them. And so then when we try to come and live out a Christian life that says, God, we're here, we're with you, but we're only wanting and willing to do the things that make absolute sense when we know from the beginning what the end will be, we know everything that's involved, who's involved, and when we feel really secure, then we'll do it. And he says, well, good luck with that. <laughs> but that's not how this operates. That's not how these stories play out. And it isn't how he intends for your story or my story to play out either. Here's Jeremiah, the one person certain of the judgment that is coming. And he goes to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, I want you to make an investment in the eyes of the people that this is your home. He has access to this property out of a relationship because this is his homeland. And he's making an investment while everybody else is running. And I submit to you that Jeremiah, Moses, Abraham, Paul, John, and ultimately even our Lord Jesus were able to submit to the risk, the perils, the dangers, the insecurities of their way of life because of their view of God. 
And so one of the reasons that we describe that part of our vision statement here is to love God and to seek that our own relationships with God are growing and developing and that when we worship God together, we ensure that everything from our songs to our prayers to our messages proclaim a great God who is mighty in deeds because if we are not growing in our understanding and in our view of God and if he is not becoming bigger and bigger then our lives will be increasingly characterized by decisions based on insecurity and fear that when we see a situation around us that is difficult we will run from it instead of embrace it. We're not going to encourage one another by proclaiming great things about one another. We're only going to find the encouragement to step out in faith and to take these kinds of steps if we proclaim a great God who is able to overcome and transcend any of our struggles or fears. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is our view of God? What do we really believe about him? And how would anybody else be able to observe in our daily actions what we believe about God? Not what we say we believe, but what our actions demonstrate that we believe about God. For Jeremiah, the message was purchase this piece of property, buy it, make an investment. Even though nobody thinks it's worth everything, everybody's running. They're starting to buy land in Egypt. They're starting to buy land in Babylon. All the press, all the the noise, the buzz is about somewhere else other than here. And so you make a public testimony that this is where you are because of what God has convicted you to do. That doesn't mean that the application for all of us is to purchase a piece of property. In the beginning pages of Acts, the pattern was actually selling property. Just read the first five, six chapters of Acts. There's a consistent pattern there in response to the signs and wonders that God is doing that they actually sold their properties. And so somebody here might be being convicted regularly about taking a risk and investing in something. It might be purchasing something but you're unsure of how it'll work out. And somebody else might be sitting here saying, I actually have more than I need. And I have so much more than I need that I don't actually pray a lot. Everything just seems to come automatic and I just trust my own resources instead of God's resources and what you're being convicted of is that you need to sell something. It'll be different for each one of us. But then one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is collectively as a body of believers, what does risk look like? Are we willing to be obedient to God in such a way that we take a risk? That we invest in areas, in people, in whatever it is that the world has looked at and said, you can't do anything there. Don't even try. Don't you know everybody's moving out? Don't you know property values are diminishing? Why would you go there? Have you heard what kind of a school system they have? And when we hear those 
statistics around us of different things that are besieging us in our day is our heart prone to go with the crowd, to buy into all the noise that's going around, or to say, we believe in a God who transcends all of those. And so actually, the more you tell us about how awful a situation is, the more likely we are to say that's where we need to be. Is that not the pattern that you see in the Gospels of Jesus walking around in his day? Saying, show me where the broken are, where the hurting are, where the lost are. But that's who I came for. Don't show me a chart that tells me where the most likely response is going to be based on my background and my this or that. Show me where there is the greatest need. And his heart was to go and to invest himself in those places with those people for his kingdom. And so as we read the story of Jeremiah, who is surrounded by some of the darkest experiences he could ever have it's so dark just finish if you can before the end of the day go home and read the rest of the chapter we're going to we're going to talk about it next week so it'll be good preparation for next week as Brad leads us through the rest of the chapter but it was so dark in Israel the people had been sacrificing their own children in the worship of foreign God That's why the judgment was coming upon them. That's why Babylon was going to succeed. That's why nothing that the people did was going to get them out of this. Punishment was coming because the people had wandered so far from the Lord that they had begun even to abuse their own children and worship of foreign gods. Awful times in Israel. And yet it's in that very moment where this message of hope comes. And the hope is not from some reinforcement from Egypt. The hope is not in some new military strategy. The hope is not in some discovery of technology that's going to get them out of this. The hope is, it's not even in the prophet. Because the prophet's in prison. The hope is in the Lord and in the Lord of loan. And so the one thing that is repeated in our passage that we get in verse 17 and then in verse 27 is the challenge for us. Jeremiah says it in his prayer, nothing is too hard for you. And then God says of himself, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, rhetorically, is anything too hard for me? Are we as Christians individually and as a church collectively characterized by hope. That whatever information you can give us about what's going on around us, what's even going on inside of us, none of that can shake our hope because our hope is not rooted in ourselves, not rooted in our circumstances, but rooted in our God for whom nothing is impossible. This is a God that we owe our lives to, our service to, our energy to, to follow him and to obey him with all the risk that comes with it. Will you kneel with me in prayer?
Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask. We ask for a vision. A stirring in our hearts from your spirit of something that you are calling us to do. Father, we have our own ideas, we have our own notions. Things that we're comparing and contrasting. But Father, we need, like Jeremiah needed, something from you. A clear vision from you. And Father, we repent and we ask for forgiveness for coming to you with our own ideas of only willing to obey you in certain circumstances. Only willing to follow if you promise us this or that. If you guarantee this or the other thing. Father, we repent for thinking that following you is a safe thing. And I ask that this year we would believe that things are possible through you. That someone who right now is being convicted to go into the foreign mission field, but just wondering if they can afford it or how this or that would work out, that they would stand up, make their commitment public, and go. Father, that someone who is wanting to run out of a marriage because they see no hope in its future would decide to stay because they have hope in you. Father, that someone who is trusting so much in their own resources to get them through would be willing to sell. Father, that someone who is holding on to things, just trying to acquire more and more, would experience the freedom that comes from generosity. Father, that the one who is so scattered and disorganized, not keeping track of where their things are going, that they would choose to follow you, to obey you, and to discipline their lives. And Father, as a, as a church body, make Lakeside the kind of a church that has a big enough view of you and what you're capable of that we are willing to obey you to make our commitment to you public in the presence of this community that you are a God who transcends all of our troubles all of our failures and that nothing is impossible for you in Jesus name we pray amen